Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to the debut episode of Hauntings, Homicides, and Headlocks, a podcast where I, Austin, a wrestling fan, tell my wife tales from the world of wrestling. Salutations and greetings, everyone. This is a podcast where I, Shawnee, a spook fan, tell my husband tales of murders and ghosts. Murders and ghosts. Pretty spooky. What do you have on the docket today? A murder. A murder. Or rather, multiple murders. Committed by one man. So we're dealing with a serial killer, is what you're saying. We are dealing with a serial killer. Mm, and delicious. <laughs> perfect way to start your morning. And no, since not. you talked about starting something, this is our first episode. I wanted to start off with something that would resonate a little with us. So we're going to be covering H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes, huh? Yeah. Is that H? H-H as in hauntings, homicides, and headlocks? It is the very same. Alright, but first off, I do have to have a little preface. He's kind of cheating. His name didn't originally have three H's. Of course, serial killers do need different names to keep up their dark hobby. He he was born as Herman Webster Mudgett. Mudgett? Yeah, Yeah, I'd probably change my name too. (laughs) Sorry for anyone who's named Mudgit out there. Austin apparently hates you. Anyway, he then went by Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, more commonly known as H.H. Holmes. He also went by Henry M. Howard, Henry Gordon, Alexander Bond, and a handful of others that are basically just random initials. Well, the first two sounded like they went together, and then Alexander Bond was just right out of left field, which it was the perfect alias. I guess so. Because it wasn't piggybacking off his first initial the whole time. Very true. His name isn't the only thing he couldn't keep straight. Mudgett confessed to 27 murders, was convicted of nine, but was suspected to have killed over 200 people. Don't get too impressed, though. Some of those people he claimed to kill were walking around very much alive. (laughs) Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) Our guy Mudgett has quite the fish tail going on for most of his life. So let's dive in and find the real fish. Was this big and he's dead in the grave, says Mm. Mudgett. Meanwhile, somewhere in Canada, the guy just had a bagel. As you do. Hey, so spookily enough, his birthday is coming up soon. Oh, happy birthday to H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes. May 16th in 1861 in the great state of New Hampshire, which is a state I forgot about completely until doing this research. I had to Google, is this a state? I am that bad at geography. No, That's great because... Right before you said you forgot it was a state, I was going to make the joke of, like, is it really that great of a state? And then you just kind of. <laughs> Sorry went for with any it. listeners from New Hampshire. Just making all kinds of enemies. That's what you want, right? Yeah. Anyway, so this little guy was born to surprisingly normal parents. Many professionals believe that serial killers have to have a troubled childhood full of abuse and animal killing to fit the mold. But that was not what many eyewitnesses reported about his the youth of Mudgett. In fact, the first tell of his interest in murders came from when he was 18 years old, and he was apprenticed to Dr. Nem White. 
who was an advocate of human dissection. Ah. I mean, go off. You can learn a lot of things from that. But looking back at what he did later in life, this is kind of a large red flag. So the person that he was apprenticing under, mm-hmm. was he also a serial killer? No. Or something inside his brain clicked when he was doing that, like, I'd like to do this with living people. Yeah, I, I don't think the doctor that he studied under was actually a serial killer. Or if he is, was, he was a lot better at it than Holmes, because Holmes got caught. Ah, so it might be. Yeah, <laughs> might be. But forget the crimes of Holmes, the conviction, the murderers, the murder castle, which I haven't told you about yet. It's a murder castle? Hold on, we'll get there. It's wild. Howard Mudgett was only a simple con man, defrauding life insurance using cadavers in college. That's how it starts. You just, you lie about your age, you lie about your weight, you kill a couple people. He didn't kill anybody in college, he just sold dead bodies. Or rather... Took out life insurance policies on dead people. No, but it's a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope. It all starts with tax fraud. (laughs) Life insurance fraud, close enough. (laughs) Anyway, the life of a poor college student, you have to get creative. You could either drive for a rideshare company, do work study for tuition, or take out life insurance policies on dead people. At least, that was the only crime he claimed to commit the first time he was suspected of actually murdering people. So they're saying that the first reported killings were in college? No, that's just what he confessed to doing when he was first suspected of killing people. Okay. Because his life is such a tangled web, there is a lot of back and forth in the timeline, and so I'm sorry for that. Gotcha. You have to stay with me. Okay. So moving from his early life, let's explore the love life of America's alleged first serial killer. First off, there was Clara Lovering who he married in 1878. It was not the idyllic pairing, as housemates reported Mudgett being very violent to Clara. She left Vermont for New Hampshire in 1884, but not before they had Robert Lovering Mudgett in 1880. We'll touch more on his descendants and their thoughts on H.H. Holmes a little more later. Uh, He was also married to Myrta Belknap only two years after his last wife left him. H.H. Holmes moves pretty fast. So at this point, he's still going by Mudgett? He's still going by Mudgett. It's in the time that he's married to Mitra that he kind of moves into Holmes. Okay. As you can tell by their child, who is named Holmes. We are moving into his more notorious years, and thus I'll be referring to him more as his common name rather than his birth name. Gotcha. He was still technically married to Clara when he wed Marta, though he did file for divorce from Clara a couple weeks after his recent marriage. He alleged that Clara had been unfaithful, but that suit never actually reached her. She never heard of that, because when the investigations proved untrue, the divorce was never finalized. So he was still married to both women. Marta must have been fine with that attempt, as they had a daughter named Lucy Theodote. Holmes, together in Chicago, Illinois, in 1889. So he's he's living two lives at this point. Kind of, yes, but he did divorce Clara, so he's not really dealing with her much. Though they do have a son together. I didn't read a whole lot of what happened to that son. I guess he kind of kept him around. Maybe he shipped him off with Clara. I'm not entirely sure. Well, in the story of serial killers, if you don't hear about someone, that's probably good. Yeah 
probably made it out okay. Yeah, that's what I'm going to assume. And he did have a lot of living descendants, so some of them had to make it out. Yeah. He must not have been satisfied with two wives, though, as Holmes married (laughs) Georgiana Yoke in 1894 in Denver, Colorado. The dude had three wives who had almost no knowledge of the other women. Okay. So this is not like a polyamorous thing where they're like aware no of it it's just holmes is being a dog yep he hit it and he hit it well and so sorry that his love life was so tangled and complex let's go back to his time in chicago this is the murder castle time Ooh, murder castle already Mm-hmm. well there's a lot to get into with the murder castle So, Holmes moved to Chicago and changed his name in 1886. He had some medical training, so he started working in a drugstore. He became great friends with the owners, the Holtons, and accumulated enough money while working there to buy the lot across from the drugstore to build a two-story mixed-use building in 1887. In 1892, he added a third floor to that building telling suppliers he wanted to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Fair. He was using the bottom part as like a drugstore, jewelry section, and the second floor was more apartments. All right. And third floor hotel, though eventually the entire thing became a hotel. And then became a murder castle. (laughs) It was a murder castle the whole time. Oh, plot twist. He had this continued trait of not paying for construction companies and furniture suppliers, which left most of the building unfinished, which was perfect for his needs. Holmes' building had hidden rooms, soundproof rooms, mazes of hallways, and a massive basement accessible quickly through chutes that would drop down into vats of acid, quicklime, and even a crematorium. This hotel drugstore apartment building had it all. It was also part of the inspiration for the hotel season in American Horror Story, among other hotel-based horror films. Also, this is kind of random, but was really funny to me. That hotel burned down in 1895 and was later converted into a post office. Oh. <laughs> like, how, how do you go to work knowing you're sorting mail where so many people died by a creepy mustachioed villain? I mean, how many places are there in the world that just they were the site of a crime scene and now they're a taco bell or something well i guess they could still be taco bell on this uh, crime scene we are not sponsored by taco bell and we never will be (laughs) anyway so here's a picture of uh h.h holmes okay oddly the first thing that comes to my mind now is well, I'm seeing his mustache now, and it looks fake. It looks kind of like one of those novelty turds that you would get at, like, a Spencer's Gifts or something. All right. And his eyes look kind of spaced out, and they're giving me big, uh, I almost said Pete Boothieg vibes, but that's <laughs> the wrong Pete. Davidson. Pete Davidson. <laughs> Pete Davidson, specifically his Chad character from SNL. I don't know why. I'm just picturing if he doesn't have a mustache, he's gonna be he's gonna be saying a word, and he's also going to be farting and saying safety. This dude killed people, and you're seeing frat bro in him. How do we know that frat bros haven't killed people? Some of them have. But we'll get to that later. Not in this podcast. All right. So now such an expansive 
building must have been expensive to upkeep. What with the gas chambers needing to be refilled and airtight, false partitions needing to be cleaned after each guest, and medical tools needing to be replaced when they went dull, how do you think he came up with all this money? Is it all the life insurance fraud? That was probably part of it. That's probably how he got up a lot of the money to buy the building. Would you guess selling organs and bones of the, his victims on the black market and medical institutions? Ooh, you know, that was my second guess, but <laughs> it just didn't feel right. Ha, huh, well, it should have. It was correct. All right. Actually, quite a few serial killers made their money by selling the cleaned out bodies back to medical schools before that process was shut down to prevent serial killers from making money. Okay. Cadavers were hard to come by, and not a lot of people wanted to donate their body to science. Probably less knowing that some might have been handled by serial killers. Enough dancing around it. Time for the people that he killed. Oh, the roster. <laughs> One of Holmes' early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smith. She was the wife of Ned Connor, who moved into one of Holmes's buildings and began working at his pharmacy jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smith's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smith and her daughter Pearl behind. Smith gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. Smith and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891. Holmes claimed she had died during an abortion, but that was never confirmed. So this Ned guy, this Ned Connors, mm -hmm. is that, he is the person that people talk about, like, if I was in a horror movie, I'd do this and I'd survive. This is, like, those people's hero. Yeah. Because he he's, out. like, saw, like, this dude's probably killing people instead of, like, confronting them, being like, what are you doing with my wife? I'm like, I'm out. I mean, more so just my wife's cheating on me with my boss. I'm kind of out of the picture. You can take the kid. Either way, he's like, I'm not going to be in the sequel. I'm just removing myself entirely. Mm -hmm. Hero of the people, Ned Connors. <laughs> I feel like you're taking the wrong things from this. <laughs> no, I think I'm taking the right things. Back to the people who died. Emmeline Sigrand and Edna Van Tassel are among the women who either worked with or dated Holmes and disappeared shortly after. There were many, many other people that passed away. Those were just some of the more noteworthy people that I could find in my research. All right, so that majorly just his mistresses that he's cutting off any loose ends? Yeah. Tying up loose ends. Kind of, or just seducing to find victims to satisfy dark urges. Those pesky dark urges. Holmes did not always work alone. He had a Watson of sorts by the name of Pitzel. Who Who had a criminal background and a coal bin that he invented. He worked with Holmes to further develop his hotel and make money from his crimes. In early 1893, goodness, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors that he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel at his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property to Fort Worth, Texas. In Fort Worth, Texas. She didn't own Fort Worth, Texas to a man named Alexander Bond. Oh. 
In April 1893, Williams transferred the deed, with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Pitzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lehman, which is cooler than a lot of Holmes's aliases. But is it cooler than Pitzel? It's not. Oh, I like Pitzel. That's fine. Oh. The next month, Holmes and Williams presented themselves as man and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister Annie came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after that letter was sent. As I said earlier, he killed many, many others who came to do business at his hotel of horror. Those mentioned were just among the more noteworthy individuals I found in my research. Okay, so this is not an exhaustive no. list. It's not. It's hard to when he would clean the bodies and donate them. We don't know exactly who all he killed. Those were just, okay. we have traces of them. So his next brilliant scheme was quite involved. I'll give you the super short version. Basically, Holmes was back to his old trick of fooling insurance companies, but wanted a mega payout this time. He found a morally ambiguous lawyer in St. Louis who helped him take out a life insurance policy on himself and then faked his own death. But the insurance company refused to pay up reasonably. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe don't take out a policy on yourself and die in a short time after with a history of fraudulent actions. Nevertheless, he tried again, (laughs) this time using Pitzel as the subject of the life insurance policy. We actually killed him. Oh my god. (laughs) Really? Only instead of faking Pitzel's death, he actually killed Pitzel by knocking him out with chloroform and setting his body on fire with benzene. That sucks. It's like you'd be knocked out from the chloroform, but as soon as you set on fire, you'd feel that. Well, that's how he said it happened. So not only is he lying about how many people he's killing, he's also lying about how he's killing them. Mm-hmm. We'll get to why. Only, if this was sticking to the plan, it would have been kind of smart to disfigure the body that way. But I guess since Pitzel knew too much, it was only a matter of time. There was also a small dance around the order of the chloroform and the fire death. Like a chicken and the egg question. Forensic evidence presented that the chloroform was administered after Pitzel's death, just to throw off the insurance company. So he died by fire and then got chloroformed. Well, that especially sucks. Yeah, poor Pitzel. But also not poor Pitzel because he helped a murderer. Well, yeah. I've picked out a hero and Ned Connors in this story, and I've also felt sympathy for an accomplice to murder. Off to a great start. I'm making you feel some things. Yeah. This plan actually worked for Holmes, and he got his big payout, so good job, Holmes. The insurance company did not want to pay him. It all fell to plan. It all worked. So did they... So they couldn't prove that he Holmes murdered. murdered him. Because you said, like, they didn't want to pay them, so they kind of knew. Like, yeah. they figured... Okay, this guy tried to fake his death and take out a life insurance policy on himself. Mm-hmm. We told him no. Now his he friend conveniently took out a life dies. insurance policy on someone else, and that person died. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove it, so they had to pay him. Now, I do have to give you a little bit of a warning for this next part. It is especially sick, but I wanted to start our first episode right. So, pressing on. Holmes then went on to manipulate Pitzel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, to be in his custody. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Pitzel. Holmes and the three Pitzel children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Mrs. Pitzel along a parallel route. 
all the while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Pitzel concerning her husband's death, claiming that Pitzel was just hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of her three missing children. In Detroit, just prior to entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. She was missing her children and her husband, and her children were just barely out of reach. In an even more audacious move, Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the entire affair, just thought she was going on a nice vacation with her super normal husband. God. Holmes would later confess to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them on a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. Oh. Holmes buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house, though some remains were found in the rental's chimney. Well, that's a downer. Would you like some good news? Sure, I'd love some good news. <laughs> They're hearing that children were murdered in yeah. a really awful way and then didn't even get a proper burial. Holmes's reign of terror finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17th, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. Oh, the Pinkertons. You might remember the Pinkertons from such hits as Red Dead 2. Maybe one. I don't know. I, I haven't played one. I feel like one, because wasn't Marston being tracked by the Pinkertons or, like, being made to work for them? Possibly. Uh, he was captured by the Pinkertons. Okay. And held... Many Pinkertons. <laughs> and held there on outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas. That was the thing he got caught <laughs> yeah, on. It's like Horse theft. You can, you can kill as many people as you want, but once you steal a horse... That's it. Game over. Yeah. As the authorities had become more suspicious at this point, and Holmes appeared posed to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. To earn even more money, while in custody, he was paid to give a local newspaper his full confession. He confessed to 27 of the murders we talked about earlier, but some of those individuals he confessed to were still alive and well. Most of his confession was found to be nonsense. But he was getting paid and wanted to leave a name for himself, so he just kept giving contradictory accounts of his life. I'm just trying to picture this from the point of view of the people that he said he murdered that were still like, very much alive. If that was you and you like you're reading this, would you be like, oh, idiot, I'm still alive, or you'd be like, oh no, I'm next. I'm a ghost. Yeah, or I'm a ghost. <laughs> no, I mean, he was captured. I'd probably just be like, idiot, we only met in the street once. You can't say you killed me. He wanted to keep giving contradictory accounts of his life, claiming full innocence, and that he was possessed by Satan. Which... Ah, uh, solid defense. Devil made me do it. Mm -hmm. Which he further blamed for his ghastly appearance in prison. He said he was becoming his true self. He was becoming more Satan-like. Okay. All because he got a little pale and was, like, looking kind of gaunt. Just kind of symptoms from just being in a cell. Yeah. And not being able to see the outside world. Maybe living with all of his guilt of killing so many people. Maybe. That might factor into. Is the devil made me do it? The My dog ate my homework of guilty pleas? Yes, absolutely. I'm trying to think if there's one that's more akin to that, but I can't think of one at the moment. Holmes was true to himself in his selfishness. Before he was hanged, he requested his coffin to be filled with cement and that he be buried ten feet deep so grave robbers wouldn't steal and dissect his body. Mm. You know, the thing that he did to bodies. Yeah. Holmes was allegedly hanged on May 7th, 1896. Allegedly? We'll get there. Is this actually Sherlock Holmes? It's just, <laughs> he's 
like we've been told that he's a good person all these years, and that was a lie. No. Maybe Moriarty was the hero. Hey, hey, do not go smearing Sherlock Holmes. We're going to talk about Arthur Conan Doyle in a little bit further down the line, and it's it's lit. It's pretty cool. Okay. That's the end of his life, but I kind of wanted to end with a wild theory, if you don't mind. All right. <laughs> I didn't know this before my research, but a living descendant of Holmes by the name of Jeff Mudgett believes that his great-great-grandfather, Holmes, was Jack the Ripper. Really? I know you don't know much about killers, but you do know who Jack the Ripper is, right? Yeah, everyone knows Jack the Ripper. Well, according to Jeff, he inherited two journals written by Holmes that detailed the mutilations of dozens of sex workers in London. They used a different word, but... Right. Sex work is work. Apparently, the man who was hanged on May 7th wasn't Holmes, but a man Holmes had convinced to take his place. Like, how do you convince someone to take your place at the gallows? Gunpoint, probably. Maybe. Then you're gonna (laughs) die either way, so... Yeah. I don't know. There'd have to be some kind of dirt that had on family or threat to your family. I'll kill you if you don't take my place. I'm not gonna buy Jeff Mudgett's book just to find out. I'm sorry. Because, yes, he did write a book. That's how this was... Hey, you wanted to go on the theory train. Okay. So here we are. All right, we're on the theory train. Now, I know this seems crazy. Why else would he want to make sure his body couldn't be retrieved? He already faked his death once. Hmm. Maybe he was Jack the Ripper. Maybe. Just kidding. Yep. I, was, I was about to say, so how do you <laughs> feel about that theory? Because... I have my I, own thoughts on Jack mm-hmm. the Ripper. We'll get there. Yeah on a different episode. But in 2017, amid allegations that Holmes had in fact escaped execution, Holmes's body was exhumed for testing led by Janet Mong of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not only to not have decomposed normally, his clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The turd lives. (laughs) It's not, it's a Perfectly respectable mustache. You need to get with the times. The body was positively identified as being that of Holmes with his teeth. Holmes was then reburied. So. His dying wish wasn't even fulfilled. Someone dug him up in the end. I mean, and they did dissect him. Yeah. To find out that it was him. I'd say that's justice. It is. So, let's see how another legendary Triple H lived. Shall we? Yeah. So, if you haven't guessed by now, or it's probably the title of the episode. We have a theme. The theme for this week. Don't expect it to be this cohesive every week. (laughs) But when we were talking about the name of the podcast, I kind of offhandedly mentioned that it made sense because the three names in the title spell out Triple H, and there's a wrestler named Triple H. And we just kind of knew it had to be the first wrestler I covered because... That's kind of the elephant in the room. Look out for that homicide episode, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But Triple H is a wrestler that brings out a lot of different opinions from wrestling fans. How many wrestlers do you think started as bodybuilders? A lot? Look at their muscles. Yeah, a lot. So the first thing that came up on a web search was an article called Top 15 Wrestlers Who Were Former Bodybuilders. And that's not even an exhaustive list. So wrestling just kind of seems to attract these big, beefy men and women. Goals. Triple H included. Uh, But Triple H was, and still is, really into bodybuilding. So much so that his only real autobiography is mostly a bodybuilding self-help book. Where can I buy this? 
Amazon. You don't want it. <laughs> he was born Paul Michael Levesque in 1969. Better than Mudgate. I can confidently say that Levesque is better than Mudgate. <laughs> Again, sorry to any Mudgates out there, including one that may have Jack the Ripper as a great-great-grandfather. <laughs> Allegedly. I just googled but, Triple H, and under it, it says American Business Professional. I mean, we'll get to that. Okay, please tell me more. But he started watching wrestling as a kid, and he became fascinated with the wrestlers' physiques. It was like, all right, many people. So many people, <laughs> when they start watching wrestling, they get drawn in by the characters, or maybe it's like the cool moves they do. It was a spandex it's, for me. Well, apparently it was for him, or it was underneath the spandex. Oh, oh well, my. No, what do you not, imply? Not like that. What was attached to the spandex? Is that a better way to say it? Attached. All right, we're moving on. <laughs> From this, he started bodybuilding when he was 14. Oh my, what else are you well, doing? I thought, I thought that that was crazy too, because it seems young, but then that just seems to be the age when most people that are bodybuilders start. I guess that's when... It's the first time that it's safe to actually start. At age 19, he won the Teenage Mr. New Hampshire Bodybuilding Contest. What is with New Hampshire? Oh, I didn't even notice that. There's so many parallels. This guy also killed people. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't actually kill people. Around this time, he was a manager of a gym in New Hampshire. While he was there... Was it a murder gym? It was not a murder gym. Not that I know of. This doesn't cover murder gyms, sadly. But Ted Arcidi, who was a powerlifter that was kind of at the end of his WWE career, uh, he showed up at Levesque's gym. And Levesque kind of convinced Arcidi to introduce him to Killer Kowalski, who had a wrestling school. No, he was not a killer. That was it's just a it was just a cool name that he had. Alright, I'm sorry. I'm not a killer. To, I'm trying to find murder and everything. You, you don't have to look hard in wrestling sometimes to find murder, but you won't find it here. Okay. Levesque starts training at the wrestling school and he made his official debut shortly after in nineteen ninety two. He would go on to wrestle on the independent circuit for about two years. So in 1994, he signs with WCW, World Championship Wrestling, and he was given the name Terror Rising, and this was changed to Terror Rising. <laughs> What's this the difference? It's spelled differently. Look, you got Terror Rising and Terror Rising. Oh, so they added a Z. I got it. Yeah. This cool is, kids. This is such an akumatized name. I can just imagine Hawkmoth being like, Terrorizing. I am giving you the ability to cause panic wherever you go. In return, you will give me Ladybug and Cat Noir's Miraculous. <laughs> so, Terrorizing would be the akumatized version, and Terrorizing is the amok. It just makes him bigger and he gets a statue. Ah. So he had this gimmick until... Hauntings, Homicides, and Headlocks. The only podcast that references true crime and Ladybug and Cat Noir. Underrated children's show. I don't know how it's rated, actually. It's perfectly wonderful. So he has the terrorizing gimmick until mid-1994, where he's given the name Jean-Paul Levesque. There's even some Paris notes. It's perfect. 
Oh, yeah. I thought you were tying it in with your killer, but you were tying it in with Ladybug and Cat Noir. I got you. I got you. We're on the same. We're on the same page. No, we're not. No, we're not because it's digital, and I'm holding my phone, and you had your phone earlier. Peel back the curtain there a little bit. Put the curtain back. I'm gonna leave it where it is. So he's given the name Jean-Paul Levesque, and. He's given an upper-class French gimmick. Wee oui, so oui. Yeah. Had to speak with a French uh, French accent, whole nine yards. He gets paired with Lord Stephen Regal, who has a character like Levex, but with a twist. He's British. So twisty. The team didn't last long because during this time, Levesque was negotiating with Vince McMahon and the WWE. So in January of 95... Levesque joins WWE, and he gets a new name. His new name is Hunter Hearst Helmsley, or Triple H. He won't officially be known as Triple H for a few more years until he gets edgier. I mean, my guy didn't get known as Triple H, ever. But he did. (laughs) H.H. Holmes was But he should have. He should have. He was the early Triple H. His gimmick was also slightly modified. No more bad French accent. Now he has a bad posh accent, and he's a Connecticut blue blood. So he has lots of pre-taped vignettes kind of showing what his character is going to be. These promos are basically him being like condescending, teaching people what proper etiquette is. Pinky's out, looking down on all the commoners. Around this time, he becomes friends with a group of wrestlers, and they form the Click. Oh, the 21 Pilots fans? No. Are they called the Click? Yeah. Okay. If they are, then 21 Pilots got it from wrestling. Okay. Possible. But it's spelled K-L-I-Q, because they're cool. And Ah. it's the 90s. (laughs) They became known for backstage politics and stopping pushes of people that they thought were threats. So push is just kind of like giving someone like an interesting story or giving them a championship, like promoting someone. Ah, and they would stop it like not. Nah, yeah, like y- no. You're not in a group. Like, you can't wear that. Mm-hmm. This guy can't hang, brother. Brother is used a lot in wrestling. Uh-huh. Just roll with it. In 1996, so this is only a year after he debuts on WWE, two of the people in the clique actually leave for WCW. So, like, ships in the night. Because around this time, WCW was just kind of taking everyone that was in WWE, like, giving them more money to join them. And two of them were Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, two members of the clique. Before leaving, they have an event at a house show. House show is just untelevised show live event at the end of the show for the five members of the clique triple h sean michaels kevin nash and scott hall sean waltman the fifth member of the clique was in rehab and would leave the company for wcw shortly afterwards i hope he's doing better he is now that's kind of another thing the clique was known for rehab and drugs and stuff like that It, it was the 90s it was the 90s but interestingly enough, Triple H was the one member of the clique that didn't partake in that. He was sober, and he would kind of be the designated driver for the group. So at the end of the show, four of the five members of the clique joined in the ring for a hug, and they all raised each other's arms. Now, it doesn't seem like much, just seems like kind of a normal thing, but two were heel and two of them were face, and they were all... Like joining together for a big group hug. Aww. Wholesome. Wholesome, but it was like breaking the 
illusion of wrestling being real. Like, obviously, everyone knew that wrestling was fake at this what? point. This was, like, blatantly not trying to hide it. <laughs> and to make matters worse, someone at the show snuck a video camera in and recorded this whole thing. So this gets out, which looks bad for WWE. Triple H was kind of the fall guy for this. Uh, This event, by the way, would become known as the curtain call because they were all kind of like taking a bow. Uh, Triple H is punished for this. He was scheduled to win the 1996 King of the Ring, which is a tournament that WWE used to do. It's like a 8 to 16 man tournament. The winner, in most cases, gets a shot at the title. But because of this, it goes to Stone Cold Steve Austin instead. So he keeps doing the blue blood thing for a little bit. He eventually just drops the accent entirely. He's just kind of doing stuff in the mid-card. He wins the Intercontinental title, which is a championship that's not the world title, that's kind of put in the middle of the card. So he gets that. Nothing really major happens in this point, except he gets a bodyguard. And... Her name is China. <gasps> I love it. And she was a gym buddy of Triple H's and his girlfriend at the time. China is definitely someone that deserves an episode of her own at some point, but for right now, just know that she was a powerhouse. She kind of like broke open doors for women wrestling, and she was done very wrong by Triple H and the wrestling business. Aww. But we love her. You don't even know her. I don't need to. She's a strong woman. I love her. Okay. We love her. In 1997, Triple H and China begin to have on-screen association with Shawn Michaels, if you'll remember earlier, one of the members of the clique. So they were already like friends backstage, and now they're kind of showing it on-screen. They also had Rick Rude, but he wasn't really with them for long. Triple H had changed his character completely. No more blue blood or posh clothes. He started wearing more casual clothes, denim jeans, leather jackets, stuff like that. Was it still the 90s? It was. It's the late 90s now. He and Sean started acting like degenerates, doing like crotch chops, saying, suck it. You know, (laughs) mothers loved them. And I'm sure you took none of these behaviors to heart. In 97, I would have been two years old. Well, still, when you watch these old matches... I didn't really have access to these growing up. I'm just saying I've heard a lot of stories about when you were younger, you'd use a lot of wrestling moves or gestures from wrestling that your mother was not happy about. I didn't do the suck it crotch chop. Oh, so you're a saint. I see. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. So the three eventually get branded D-Generation X. In early 98, Sean got a career-threatening back injury, and he had to retire after WrestleMania 14. The night after WrestleMania, Triple H takes over as leader of DX, says, you know, like, Sean dropped the ball based on Mike Tyson betraying them at WrestleMania. Do you know who Mike Tyson is? Oh, um, uh, hold on. Mike Tyson. Did he bite an ear off? He did bite an ear off, or at least part of one. So yeah, he was, like, a member of DX for a little bit. He was a degenerate. He was a degenerate. He didn't do the crotch chops right, though, so I don't know how much of a degenerate he, he was. He didn't do them right? Yeah, he... I don't know how you messed them up, but he found a way. 
I just, I'll show you I'll show you a video later. He did it from it. the rear. No, not quite. He says like Sean dropped the ball because he kept saying like Mike Tyson's good. He's with us. It's fine. He didn't really do anything to betray them. He didn't really do anything in the match at all. He, he's gonna start a new DX army because you you start an army, you look to your blood, you look to your brothers, brothers. you look to the click. And out comes X-Pac, or Sean Waltman, back from WCW. He joins DX, and then later on in the night, they recruit a tag team called the New Age Outlaws. Whenever Attitude Era fans talk about DX, this is the group they remember. And they were very popular at the time, so much so that uh, they eventually turned face. So by 1999, DX had kind of run its course as a group. Triple H turns heel at WrestleMania 15, attacking X-Pac. He joins the big heel group at the time, the Corporation. It's just called the... Not the Core Pirate, just the Corporation. At the end of 1999, I have to preface this, that this is in storyline, that this isn't something that happened in real life. He drugs Vince McMahon's daughter and marries her against her will. Um. Stephanie was in on it the whole time, and he did it to get back at Vince for being a dick. <laughs> I mean, so, from what you've told me of Vince McMahon, same. Yeah. Scummy. Yeah, pretty much. In storyline, scummy, too. Yeah. So at this point, he had kind of, to get back at Stone Cold, he had his daughter kidnapped or the undertaker kidnapped her but then it turns out that he was the one that arranged it it was a real convoluted mess but that was kind of the that was kind of the reasoning she gave for siding with triple h you had me kidnapped yeah so she becomes uh stephanie mcmahon helmsley and the two rule over the shows like making things difficult for wrestlers on the roster like putting like the popular wrestlers and handicap matches different stuff like that did they like real life get married or just for the story this is around the time things get rough for china so triple h and stephanie's on-screen relationship goes off screen oh triple h and stephanie married in real life in 2002 and have been married ever since well that's sweet for them when Triple H and Stephanie initially start dating. Triple H cheated on China for Stephanie, and China's status on the company kind of plummets after that. She's not as prominently featured, mm. and she's basically pushed out of the company in 2001. Please do an episode on her. I want to hear more. In early 2000, he starts calling himself The Game. The it's only like, game's the one he's playing with China. <laughs> I love how into this you are now just because of, like, how wrong China got out of this. He starts calling himself the game, like, he's not only the best in the game, he is the game, that sort of thing. And I just lost the game. We're not doing this here. <laughs> and commentator Jim Ross gives him the nickname Cerebral Assassin, <sighs> saying he's smart and kills people. No, just he's smart and ruthless. But interesting enough that there's Assassin here after the other Triple H is a... Well, I don't know if he's an assassin. Is a murderer an assassin? No. Okay. 
But... Anyway, assassins kill people. It connects. Sure. So he uses a sledgehammer, cripples people, all fun stuff. Yeah, my Triple H has... did not. Didn't cripple people or didn't use a sledgehammer? Both. I mean, he might have crippled people before. And some survived his attacks. Certainly the ones that were just walking around in Canada with a bagel. Yeah. Good on you, Steve. <laughs> or Ned. Ned, Ned, Ned Connor. Connors. How dare you disrespect Ned Connors, the hero of the story. See, you attach to Ned Connors. I'm attaching to Chen. <laughs> you attach to the better person. Your person actually did something. <laughs> so, he feuds with Mick Foley, and Foley was known as Hardcore Legend. So this feud gets Triple H over as a tough wrestler because they have these two bloody, like, brutal battles. And following this feud, he becomes, like, the heel of the company. And he wins the world title, I think, a couple times. Whoa! He wins it a lot in his career. Spoilers. (laughs) In May 2001... He's in a tag match with Stone Cold against Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho. During this match, he takes a step at one point and immediately tears his quad. Ah. And he would go on to wrestle another five or six minutes and finish the match, Hmm. including a point where Chris Jericho had a submission that kind of focused on the legs, and he put that on him, and in... Jericho's book, which I have read, he uh, <laughs> points out this moment where Triple H just tells him, like, put me in the submission. Like, show must go on. Ah. So, I don't really care when people call wrestling fake. A lot of people get really angry. What do you mean? It's and, completely real. And I can, I can kind of see their point when I look at stuff like this. This is like just the idea of carrying on through injuries and stuff. And this is far from the last time when you'll see wrestlers continue matches after injuries. It's motivational. Yeah. It's a story that draws you in. You want it to be real. Mm -hmm. I get it. Some people in actual sports will do this, but a lot of them won't. Reasonably so. It's stupid because you're putting more strain on injured limb it doesn't matter so it's fake but it hurts uh even the bumps which are just like any fall to the mat you take yeah probably covered in bruises at all times Mm-hmm. life of pain for a wrestler but that money though sometimes he's out eight months comes back in january of 02 as a face as a good person so they, yeah these kinds of heel-to-face turns happen a lot in wrestling, just kind of out of sympathy and respect. So especially if you see someone have a really bad injury. Like, you can be a real bastard, but then have a horrific injury and then come back to cheers. He wins the title again at WrestleMania 18, and then he turns heel on newly out of retirement Shawn Michaels. So you remember Shawn had to retire, like, 1998 he had a Mm. back injury he was everyone was telling him like this is the end of your career you can't wrestle anymore he comes comes back in 2002 and triple h turns heel on him throws his head into a car window and they have a match 
his head was in a window. He can't wrestle. No, he recovered in like <sighs> four weeks. I don't know if that was a month or two month build. All right. He's given the world title by heel authority figure at the time, Eric Bischoff. And he. <laughs> Go ahead. Bischoff. I'm sure lots of wrestling fans have given him that name in the past. He'll go on to hold this title for about the majority of 2002 and 2003, only losing the title occasionally. So he would lose it for like a month and then get it right back. This is known as the Reign of Terror because he would rarely get beaten and would open pretty much every show with a 20-minute promo like saying how great he is. I love that. Uh Uh-huh. It's an exciting start to the show, right? I mean, you don't watch wrestling anyway, but if you started watching and that was what was happening, you just turn it right off. Unless in the middle of that, Orange Cassidy was just taking a nap, rocked to sleep by Gentleman Jervis. I'm not watching it. Don't at me. Those are the only two wrestlers I like and that I watch. So he would also kind of bury all of his opponents, just like making them look weak. The biggest offense of this was Booker T. Washington? Not Booker T. Washington. (laughs) Just Booker T. He was set to face Triple H for the title at WrestleMania 19. And in the build-up to the match, Triple H says things like, this is where it gets really bad. As far as, like, uh, burial and just really tasteless angles. Says, people like Booker T. don't win championships. They're there to make people like me laugh. Do a dance for me, Booker. Talked about his nappy-looking hair. (gasps) If you haven't guessed by this point, Booker T is a black wrestler. I figured. Triple H is a white wrestler. I've seen. Yes. Understandably, this story came off poorly. What year was this? This was 2003. (sighs) Still no excuse. Still no excuse. You said 19. I thought it was 2019. I'm like, that would not have flied. No. Flown. No. He would be canceled. 2019 was actually the first black world champion. Lit. Progress. Woo. (laughs) Progress. So many years later. Yeah. Still Uh, progress. Understandably, the story came off poorly, especially because Triple H beat Booker T in the match and made him look really weak. I've seen this match. I had one of the old, like, box sets that you could get that would have WrestleMania Anthology, and it shows, like, this year to this year. I had 2000 to 2004, so WrestleMania 19 was 2003. I had this DVD. I've seen this match. I remember very little about this match. It was very boring. It's just Triple H pretty much doing the majority of stuff. Booker T gets very little offense in. And the worst part of it is the finish. So he hits his finisher on Booker T, and he kind of falls over, lays on his back. That's it? And then he crawls over, crawls over, puts one arm over Booker T, and the ref had kind of been out of it. So the ref is just, like, getting to a point where he can make the pin. One, two, three. So, from finisher to pin, it took 18 seconds for him to get over to him, and he still won the match. So here's how this usually plays out. This is a common trope in wrestling, where 
someone like towards the end of a match they'll hit their finisher and they're like exhausted so they can't take advantage of it they can't make the pen they'll like crawl over for the cover they'll like put one arm over them like one two kick out but that doesn't happen he just pins him beats him yeah so because of this booker's status drops significantly like leading up to wrestlemania booker was like really popular and thanks to this he never reached that popularity again but he goes on to win the championship in 2006 but it's like nowhere near the same level that it would have been in 2003 so coinciding with his reign of terror triple h gets himself another heel group to help him keep the title to kind of I guess explain why he's just holding this title for this long. Degenerates all 2.0. These, not Degenerates. It's called Evolution. I hate it. Go back to Degenerates. <laughs> I feel like most of you this have, podcast is just going to be me reading wrestler names. Or group names. Yeah. Probably. Very likely. <laughs> so you have Randy Orton, who's the young star in waiting. Ric Flair, who's the old mentor. Guy Fieri. Excuse me? <laughs> Rick Flair just reminds me of Guy Fieri, sorry. <laughs> and Batista, who's the powerhouse bodyguard. Mm-hmm. You may know Batista as Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. So he loses the title to Chris Benoit at WrestleMania 20. Shortly after, Orton wins the title from Benoit at SummerSlam 2004. And following this, Triple H kicks Orton out of the group out of jealousy because it's like you can't Orton sit beat with the, us. Yeah, pretty much. How Triple much H of wrestling be, is just Mean Girls? So much. <laughs> it's Triple H, Regina George. It's yes, he is. But <laughs> it's Mean Girls. But it's all the like dream segments that Katie has of people just attacking each other. Mm. That's wrestling. Okay. So he kicks Orton out of the group out of jealousy. Do they still wear pink on Wednesdays? No, but he would, he wore a lot of purple at this time. Ah. He wins the title from Wharton. Later on down the line, Batista kind of sees all this stuff that Triple H is doing, realizes that Triple H only really cares about himself. Leading up to WrestleMania 21, Batista wins the Royal Rumble, which is a 30-man battle royal. You throw people over the top rope to the floor. Last person standing wins. Batista wins... Batista sees that Triple H is only looking out for himself, and Batista's like, I want to fight you, and wins the title from Triple H at WrestleMania 21. And then after this, Triple H breaks down and turns on Ric Flair. So DX is completely gone. Not DX. I was reading ahead. Evolution is completely gone. (laughs) So he challenges John Cena for the title at WrestleMania 22, Cena gets really heavily booed despite being face. This is the start of where the audience really getting sick of John Cena. Same. I was going to explain it to you, but you already don't like him, so I guess I don't have to. Nope, move on. Okay. And Triple H is getting cheered during this despite being a heel. And after this, he kind of becomes face by default. He has a DX reunion with Shawn Michaels in 2006. But Sean is a born-again Christian at this point, so DX in 2006 kind of boils down to Triple H doing juvenile humor and Sean, like, 
make a funny face or cover his eyes and ears. This version of DX is poorly received, and he kind of remains face, wins a lot more titles, remains kind of on top of the card, and he remains face until 2013. And 2013, if you couldn't guess, turns heel, and he becomes an authority figure. And the group, another group name, is called The Authority. Mm. How do you feel about that one? Oh, I've been forgetting to get your take on Triple H, because we've passed the point from like where the picture was from, but I showed you a picture of Triple H, and... Uh, what what were your what were your thoughts on this man? Uh, he was just he was oily and muscly and. You're describing a lot of wrestlers. <laughs> I'm also looking up a picture so I can refresh my memory. I like his beard. You like his beard? I do like his beard. It is a distinguished beard. Okay, so. Um. Did he have long hair at one point? He did have long hair at one point. I don't like that one. You don't like the long hair? No. What what is that? He looks like you? angry uh, cowboy. Angry cowboy is that that's what I'm going with. He does kind of look like he's saying yeehaw. Yeehaw! As he's holding two titles. They're belts. They're not titles. <laughs> oh, what's the point of the belt? Are you ever gonna explain the belt to me? Why do they want the belts? The belt is so. Do they have the problems biggest, holding like, up their pants? No. So the reason they want championships is just like the most famous and successful people have championships and also in superstar of the world so also in like wrestling kayfabe which is like the term for like wrestling being presented as real Mm -hmm. so kayfabe is like in storyline in kayfabe if you have a championship you're making more money is that true? Sometimes it is. That's not always the case. Okay. The the fact of it is is just whoever is the biggest star makes the most money. Obviously. So he the creates authority. the authority and their tagline is best for business. I hate so it. any kind of like matches that he makes that the audience hates is like, no, you just don't see this is best for business. And he gets to arrange matches and like picks chosen champions. He's not an on-screen authority figure like right now. He's not on-screen authority anymore. But anytime he does come back on screen, this is his character now. Ah. In 2012, he turns WWE's FCW, which is uh, WWE's developmental territory, into NXT. So it's a bigger production. They move it to Full Sail University, and he gets more names from the independent scene. Kind of builds a brand. NXT is probably the first thing from this that you would be aware of because I think I've shown you at least one or two things from that. So NXT takeovers uh, are kind of their pay per view, and then they get to a point where they pull in crowds that are similar to. Like the Raw or SmackDown pay-per-views. Raw. In 2017, a tournament with lots of names from the UK is held. Is that they get the Progress? Is that a UK brand? It is a UK brand, and 
we'll get to progress in just a little bit. Ah, cool. So they they crown a champion. It's well received. And then in 2018, they have another tournament. And during that tournament, they announce that NXT will have a UK show. They partner with different UK companies. Progress is one of them. And they say that there will be, like, talent sharing and they'll help the partnered companies. They don't. Do I, I, I see your skepticism already. You know what's coming. So what ap- actually happens is they'll advertise... Uh, this person from NXT will be at this progress show, or this person from NXT will be at this ICW show. Those are the only two that I can think of at the moment. Okay. Or WXW, that's another one. And then they'll kind of be pulled from shows, citing mysterious injuries that no one can really prove. He broke his pinky toe! He can't wrestle! Yeah. Sometimes they'll actually have people on the shows that they're advertised for, but there have been so many cases of people being pulled from shows when they're supposedly supposed to be helping these companies. Did Triple H bring back his, like, posh character for this show? No. It would kind of make sense, though. So this is kind of where people really started to turn on NXT in general, NXT and NXT UK, because they believe that NXT UK killed the UK indie scene. Mm. If you look at the scene now, it's like nothing compared to what it was in like, I think 2015 and 2016 was the height of it. So that's where Triple H is as far as public perception right now. He has many followers and many detractors. There's definitely a lot to be said about the man. So it seems. That is the career of Triple H. Not the entire career, mind you, but kind of a succinct summary of his career and uh, just public perception. Cool. And any thoughts? Like, what did you think about about his career, aside from you really love China and want to hear more about China? How do people keep up with all the heel turns like he's a heel he's a face he's a heel he's a face he's a heel he's a face well ah, a, lot, one, a lot of the ones that i was giving you were kind of over the span of like two or three years like it wasn't Still. just like week to week although there is someone that is notorious for doing that he sounds exhausting exhausting <laughs> It's just a lot of times when someone's act is getting stale or something, people think the solution is like, oh, turn him face or turn him heel. Sometimes it works, but it doesn't. it's not always the case that that'll solve the problem. And sometimes just a really well done heel turn or face turn is really compelling, especially if there's a good reason for it happening. If but there's motivation, yeah. If there's motivation... Yeah, it can be good, but I understand what you're saying if it's just like, I hit this guy in the nuts because I'm a bad guy now. I'm just saying, you can only turn a banana around so many times before the whole thing goes bad. Those are words of wisdom if I've ever heard them. So with that... Shall we close our first episode? Yeah, I think so. Thank you all for listening and joining us. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can leave a review or spread the word, tell a friend... 
spread it on social media, all that fun stuff. If you want to talk to us directly, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Achow. I sneezed. That's A C H O U I J U S T S N E E Z E D. And you can follow me on Twitter at Shunning Chow. That's S H U N N I N G C H O U. And until next time, if it happens in the ring, at a crime scene, or in a haunted house, you just might hear about it on Hauntings, Homicides, and Headlocks. Ding ding!